kids can now be dismissed. Uh, Lydia and Daryl are there in the back, uh, so all you kiddos uh, go there with them. Um, I greatly appreciate our worship team. I do have to admit, however, uh, that at times your pastor is really not that mature of a person because when we were singing your, The Rock Won't Move, I could not stop thinking about Dwayne The Rock Johnson. And uh, the whole song, I was just thinking about The Rock. And I'm like, I've got to focus. This song is about Jesus. It's not about Dwayne Johnson. So if you have ever been there, uh, then thank you for being immature with me. Um, anyway, so we... Uh, my wife is embarrassed. I'm sorry. So today we finish the book of James. Uh, We have been going through this series on the book of James for a couple of months now. And throughout this series we have covered a great many uh, important topics. And I think you would agree that in this uh, series the overarching theme in the book of James has been that our faith must be active. Or to put it in James' exact words, do not merely listen to the word, do what it says. Or elsewhere, he says, faith without works is dead. Throughout the letter, James has consistently hammered home the point that our faith does not allow us to passively sit in a seat taking in the blessings of God and the experience of the church and the information that we learn. If our faith is genuine, it requires something of us. And that very thought makes sense considering how we got this faith to begin with, that it cost Christ His life. Therefore, Hebrews says, we do not have a great high priest who is unable to identify with our sufferings. He has suffered in every way, has been tempted in every way that we have, and yet remained without sin. Thus, God is not asking anything from us that He has not first given Himself. And so in the book, James has talked a lot about suffering. And hopefully that's been helpful to you since every one of us suffers in various ways. Um, James has been consistently reminding us to set our anchor in joy. And when we set our anchor down in joy, when the storms of life come our way, and they will, on the other side of it, our sails may be tattered, but the anchor holds. And God offers wisdom to us to show us how we might suffer well. James has also talked a lot about what our relationships should look like in the church. How every single one of us equally bears the image of God, regardless of our background, our socioeconomic status, or any other superlative we carry into the room. That each and every one of us bears a responsibility to one another, to serve one another, to love one another, to walk alongside one another throughout life. He reminded us that that we have to have control over our tongues because our words reveal what is really inside of our hearts. He said that the way that we speak about other people 
will reveal if we truly love one another. Over and over, James reminds us also to be humble. That arrogance and pride are evidence of an inflated sense of who we are, thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought. And he says that we have to see people not for what we can gain from them, but as fellow heirs of the grace of God. And he's also reminded us that we are called to holiness. That this world is not our home. We are only here temporarily. To use an analogy that I used a couple of weeks ago, we're just in the hotel lobby. We're not home yet. So, as we wait for our room to be ready inside the resort, we can't allow ourselves to get wrapped up in the temptations of this world or to have a a proud view of what our futures hold as if our futures are determined by our own abilities. And so in every one of these areas, I hope you've seen that a consistent theme has risen to the top. And that is that our faith is a deeply corporate experience. Certainly, there is something to be said about our personal faith. But we are not called to be saved as standalone individuals. We are saved and called to be a part of the body of Christ. And every single one of us has a part to play in the body. We are each gifted uniquely, and the body needs every single one of those parts. We are created in the image of relationship. Thus, we are designed for relationship. And so James has reminded us over and over that we have a responsibility to one another to glorify God in the way that we pursue holiness together. So, it is only fitting that he ends his letter with an exhortation to shared holiness. So let's look together at the final two verses of the book of James. Chapter 5, verses 19 and 20. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, Let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. In the summer of 2017, the Ursary family was vacationing in Panama City Beach, Florida. The family of nine that went on vacation to the beach that day included 34-year-old Roberta Ursery, her husband, and 11- and 8-year-old brothers Noah and Stephen, their 67-year-old grandmother, and a few nephews as well. Their beach day began that day, as I'm sure most beach days begin, playing in the sand, uh, laying out and getting a tan, jumping through the waves, getting very, very sunburned uh, and dehydrated. But then, their normal beach day turned into a parent's worst nightmare. 
Noah and Stephen, the 11 and 8 year old brothers, decided to take their boogie boards out into the water and ride some of the surf while the rest of the family stayed on the beach. And eventually, Roberta, their mother, realized that she looked out and she could no longer see her two sons. She yelled their names, she frantically searched, and finally, she spotted the two boys about a hundred yards away from the shore, screaming and crying, unable to swim back. And the reason is because the boys were trapped in a rip current. Rip currents are powerful currents of water beneath the surface of the water that pull away from the shore out toward open water. Even the strongest of swimmers caught in riptides sometimes are, are not aware of what to do and are placed in grave danger. It's estimated that over 100 people in America are killed every year by riptides and that 80% of lifeguard rescues result from people getting trapped in rip currents. So in that moment, all Roberta knew was that her sons were in danger. And so she rushed out into the water and swam toward them to try to rescue them. Her husband went with her. And then so did all seven family members that were waiting on the beach. But then the situation went from bad to worse. Instead of rescuing the boys... Now all nine members of this family were trapped in this rip current and all nine of them unable to swim back to shore. So they did the only thing that they could do in that moment, which was to yell and scream and wave their arms to try to get people's attention. One witness said that she initially thought that they were screaming about a shark in the water. And so several people just got out uh, completely. But before long, it became clear that this group, this family, was trapped and being dragged out to sea. And so the onlookers there on the beach called 911. Soon, police arrived to the scene. And uh, I'm not sure why there wasn't a lifeguard Maybe they were in a spot that doesn't have lifeguards. You know, there, there are places on beaches that there are no lifeguards, and I, I assume this was one of them. So the police show up, and one of the officers ran out into the water to try to swim towards uh, the family. But even he himself found the current too strong and realized that if he continued, he would get stuck himself. And so he had to swim back empty-handed. The uh, authorities there convened and came up with a strategy and announced that they would have to call for a rescue boat. The bad news was there was no telling how long it would take for a rescue boat to actually show up. By the time a rescue boat arrived, it could be too late. So, the onlookers on the beach decided that they would literally take matters into their own hands. Led by a woman named Jessica Simmons and her husband, they began to yell, Form a human chain. Form a human chain. And so, one by one, 
the crowd began to form a human chain going out into the water. It started with five people, then another ten, then more and more added. Before long, this chain of people linked arm in arm and hand in hand was totaling more than 80 people. As people were on the beach looking on, seeing that the chain needed to be longer, they would swim down the chain and link up there at the end. Jessica Simmons waited until the chain was long enough, and then she swam down the length of the chain, which had grown just long enough to reach this family 100 yards out from the shore. At this point, the family had been stranded out there for over an hour. Every single one of them was on the verge of drowning. First, Jessica reached the mother, Roberta, the mother of the two sons. Roberta later tells the Washington Post, I remember thinking, I'm going to die. My whole family is going to die in this way. I just can't do it. And there in the water, she blacked out. But just as she blacked out, Jessica reached her and started to pass her down the chain back to the beach. And so Roberta awoke on the beach a few moments later. But she could hear them screaming that her mother, the the grandmother, was having a heart attack now in the water. But the human chain then reached Roberta and quickly passed her down the chain and... Uh, The first responders were waiting to tend to her. One by one, each of these nine family members were plucked out of the water by 80 strangers joined hand in hand to form this chain. And as you can see, this is a picture of the chain forming. After rescuing each of these nine family members, one by one, each of the members of the chain then passed themselves back along the chain back to the beach where every single person was out of the water safe, just as the sun was beginning to set. The crowd all began cheering and clapping, celebrating this incredible moment. Later on in a Facebook post, Jessica Simmons said, To see people from different races and genders and backgrounds coming into action To help total strangers is absolutely amazing to see. People who didn't even know each other went hand in hand in a line into the water to try to reach them. Pause and just imagine that. Imagine that indeed. The power and beauty of total strangers forming a link to save other strangers from certain death. Now with that in mind, I want you to imagine something similar, but even more powerful. And that is members of the body of Christ who know and love one another, linked together, hand in hand, to rescue others who have slid toward spiritual death. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is what we have been called to. The church, you see, is not a place that you go on Sundays. 
The church is not a service that you attend. The church is not a a physical building or, or any type of physical location that is visited and then left behind. The church was designed to be a human chain linked together by a shared unity in Christ and a passion for His mission, joined together to reach those who are stranded in the riptides of sin and faithlessness, passing them back to shore. The truth is, we need each other. Because without each other, we will drown. And so what James closes his letter with is a picture of spiritual rescue brought about by a unified church. But in order to see this become a reality, it's going to require a few things from us. So, if you're taking notes, here's point number one. Spiritual rescues require watchfulness. Spiritual rescues require watchfulness. We have to begin with a point that is very difficult for Americans to swallow. It's something that flies in the face of our fierce individualism, even makes us uncomfortable just talking about it. And that is the fact that in order to live out what James is telling us to do here, there's a sense in which we have to be up in each other's business. Notice first the immediate context of these verses in the passage that we read last week. And if you read from verse 13 through verse 20, what you would see is there is a shift in personal responsibility to corporate responsibility. A shift from active to passive At the beginning of this passage, in verse 13, James commands individuals to take personal responsibility for how they handle the challenges of life, good times and bad times. He says that if you're suffering, you ought to pray. And then he points out the need for someone who is terminally ill to call upon the elders and have them come to visit. He then points out the issue of sin and how we are to uncover our own sin. That we have to confess our sins to each other and then pray for one another in order that we might be healed. And he says that the prayer of faith can heal people from physical and spiritual brokenness. All of these are active, personal steps that one takes to pursue a life of holiness in Christ. But then here, in the last two verses, there's a shift to passive. A shift, again, from personal responsibility to corporate responsibility. From what am I supposed to do to what is the church supposed to do. Because in these last two verses, it's not the sinner that is seeking restoration and repentance. It's the church seeking out the sinner. In these verses, what we have is a church on a rescue mission. 
It is the church that brings back a wanderer. And that, my friends, is no simple task. Let's look at this once more. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Now, one of the reasons why this is not so simple to live out is because we've grown up being trained to keep to ourselves and to tell others to keep to themselves and that we ought to stay out of each other's business. We have very private, individual lives. We hesitate to insert ourselves into somebody else's life because, as Americans, we are very independent. We have a a very um, um, well-formed personal bubble. We have a stupid saying that people get tattooed on themselves. Only God can judge me. We believe that people's choices are their own business. And to some degree, that is true. As we'll see when we go on, James is not advocating some type of big brother approach in which we're constantly under surveillance from the church police. It's not what he's talking about. What he is saying is that we are to look out for each other. We're to pay attention to each other. As it relates to spiritual matters in the church, we look out for each other. And if we see a loved one in danger, it is our responsibility to go and get them. Imagine you're in a city, walking down the sidewalk, and you reach an intersection, and you see a person who's got their headphones on, not paying attention, looking at their phone, and they begin to walk out into the street where a car is about to hit them. Now, in that moment, do you say to yourself, ah, you know, it's really not my business to interfere with where this person wants to walk. I mean, clearly they want to go that way. It's not my place to, to try to do anything. Of course not. If you see that happen, you grab that person by whatever you can get a hold of and yank them back so that they don't get hit by a car. That's what you would do for a total stranger. How much more are we to do that for those that we love? So, you may be asking, practically speaking, what does that look like? Well, let's start with what it doesn't look like. What it doesn't look like is what we're all afraid of as we're talking about this. The legalism police patrolling around the body, looking for sins to point out. Um, When I was in college, I attended this place called Liberty University. Um, There are several Liberty alums in the room. Uh, And the thing was, there was a joke uh, while we were at Liberty that what was ironic about Liberty University was its name. And the reason why we said Liberty was an ironic name is because there were a lot of rules. Now, I didn't know this when I first applied to Liberty. All I knew was it was a Christian school that had an ice hockey team. That was the only focus that I had. 
So I show up on campus and I'm handed this document called The Liberty Way. The Liberty Way was a document of I don't know how many pages detailing all of the things that you were not supposed to do. For example, I learned that there was a dress code. A dress code that, even though it's not as bad as it used to be, which is that guys were required to wear a collared shirt and tie, a suit jacket, nice pants, every single day. Okay, that's how it used to be. It wasn't quite that bad when I arrived. However, there were rules that I was already breaking. For example, guys were not allowed to have their ears pierced. I have both. Uh, There's also a curfew. I'm thinking, I'm an adult. Why is there a curfew? I didn't have a curfew in high school, but now I'm required to be back into my room for room checks at midnight. They were kind, however, on the weekends, because on Friday and Saturday, you could be out until 12.30. Boy, oh boy, living it up on the weekend for an extra 30 minutes. All kinds of rules. You're not allowed to watch R-rated movies. A guy and a girl are not allowed to have more than a three-second side hug, or else. No kissing. I mean, you go down the list, and if, if you break one of the rules... It's enforced by the RAs, the resident assistants. They literally walk around with a pad in their pocket where they write out what were called reprimands. Call them reps for short. And so, if the RAs are patrolling around and they go, Ha! You, sir, you have your ears pierced. That'll be three reps. And they hand you a pink slip. The copy goes to your resident director, and it gets put on your record. The more reps you get, well, then you start getting fined. After the fines, there's suspensions, there's probation, all kinds of things. And so, you have to make sure that you're following the rules or you get written up. My family, being the supportive bunch that they are, had a bet going when I was dropped off at college, to see how long it would take for me to get written up. My gracious mother gave me one day. As it turned out, I lasted 13 days before getting written up, and it was for being out of dress code because I didn't take my earrings out. Surprise, surprise. Ever the rebel. At that time, there's about 8,000 students on campus. So roughly the same size of the student body as Notre Dame. And uh, this RA saw me coming out of the dining hall, and he issued me a warning. He said, hey, man, you're not supposed to have earrings. And I'm like, oh, yeah, sorry. I took him out. The next day, the same RA saw me. What are the chances, honestly, in a pool of 8,000 people to see me on the same offense less than 24 hours later? And he's like, sorry, man. I can't give you a warning this time. Here's three reps. So this became kind of the system that we were in. And these RAs, man, some of them really took their jobs very seriously. Some of them were really, really legalistic about being RAs. For example, Allison had a friend, a roommate, that was dating an RA, okay? So her roommate is dating this guy, and they are hanging out together off campus, and as many couples do... 
they kiss. This RA wrote himself up. He wrote himself up because that is against the rules. And so he turned himself in. Okay, on one hand, pat on the back, dude. That's trying to have some integrity. On the other hand, are you kidding me right now? But this is how it was. Now, the reason why I'm telling this story about LU is because that is what we're afraid of happening if we follow what James is saying. We're afraid that we're going to be under the constant watchful eye of spiritual RAs who are going to be waiting to write us up, give us reps for all kinds of legalistic things. But that's not what James is advocating. Does this passage give a foundation to the legalism police? People who think that their job is to point out other people's sins. I would emphatically say, no. First, we we have to look at the previous verses here, where James has already established the need for people to confess their own sin. Verse 16, Therefore confess your sins to one another. Pray for each other that you may be healed. Legalists are notoriously bad at admitting their own sin. Elsewhere, James has over and over and over stressed the need in this book for humility. Chapter 4, verse 6, God gives more grace. Therefore, he opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. A little bit later on in the passage, he talks about not arrogantly slandering one another in verses 11 and 12 of chapter 4, where he says, Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks evil against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. There's only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Nor is this passage talking about matters of personal conviction or, or secondary doctrines. This is not talking about people walking around church blowing the whistle on how you dress or whether you drink or whether you watch R-rated movies. What this is talking about is wandering away from the truth. It is seeing someone who is at risk of abandoning their faith because of pain or temptation and reaching out and helping them see the truth afresh. Now, in the context of loving community, we can talk amongst each other with people that we love about secondary doctrines. We can talk in the context of relationship about whether it is healthy or not healthy to do certain things. But this passage is not talking about being an RA. It's about building such close relationships within the walls of the church, relationships built with love and trust, and seeing when our family members are struggling. Struggling with temptation, struggling with sin, struggling with pain, with doubt, with fear. And then being the ones to link arms and put our arms around them to save them from drowning. 
please note here that watchfulness is not the same thing as nosiness. In the former, we care about each other and we have each other's backs. In the latter, we're only interested in smearing each other because of self-righteousness. Number two, continuing with this theme of humility. Humility is required from the rescued as well as the rescuer. Humility is required from the rescued as well as the rescuer. Let's, let's think about the opposite perspective here for just a moment. We've already established that James is not trying to uh, give a foundation for instituting the spiritual Gestapo that rats each other out. Every one of us is called to treat one another with love and respect, humility and honor. But let's think for a moment about the perspective of the person who is being rescued. And this, perhaps, is the more difficult position to be in. To illustrate, ask yourself the following question. How would I respond if a fellow believer came to me in love and pointed out a way that I was wandering from the truth? I can tell that for most people, the response would be, back off. Stay out of my business. You have no right to tell me what to do. Only God can judge me. In the words of Andy Samberg, I'm an adult. I will take your advice and throw it on the ground. That would be, for most people, the natural response. Even if someone approaches you in the right way, approaches you in in love, most people respond in that fashion. Why? Well, very simply, no one likes to be told that they're making sinful choices. No one likes to be told that they're not living right. That hurts. That is offensive. But here's a very simple truth for us to consider. The Bible is clear that the gospel, as beautiful as it is, offends the heart of the sinner every time. The beautiful gospel of Jesus Christ is in its nature an offensive gospel because it confronts our pride face to face calls it to reckon with the truth. And that is not comfortable. It is, however, necessary. And we are called to be the bearers of that gospel and also the acceptors of that gospel. Consider the words of Proverbs 27, 6. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but an enemy multiplies kisses. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but an enemy multiplies kisses. You'll see there very clearly that a true friend at times 
will wound you. The wounds of a friend are faithful. What that means is that when somebody tells you the truth, it's going to hurt. It will sting. It will be humbling. At times, it might even feel humiliating. But in the end, it will save you. And then Solomon follows that by pointing out that it's actually your enemies who are telling you exactly what you want to hear. It's the people that that don't really care about you. It's the people that don't know any better that will tell you, live out your truth. Follow your heart. Don't let anyone tell you how to live your life. Don't let anyone tell you what you can or can't do. You're an adult. You're in charge. Hey, keep your faith to yourself. It's fine to believe whatever you want to believe as long as it stays in private. These destructive pieces of advice will do nothing but enable you to continue pursuing sin. And as a result, you will get dragged into the riptide. Again, I am not, and far more importantly, James is not, advocating a system in which people are running around the church just pointing fingers at each other. Ha! Look at what you're doing. Ha! Look at what you're doing. James is not advocating legalism. What he is saying is that there are ways in which the world and the brokenness that we experience in the world through temptation, through doubt, through fear, through pain, those things get us caught in a rip current that drags us away from steady shore of truth. And we are called to rescue one another. And so when someone comes to you and says, take my hand, let's swim back to shore, you need to be humble. It's at that point that you need to obey James' command in verse 16, therefore confess your sins to one another. Pray for one another that you may be healed. If you respond in that way, you will be so glad that you did. Point number three. Spiritual rescues are performed by a body, not an individual. Spiritual rescues are performed by a body, not an individual. Notice again the wording of our passage and who it is directed to. My brothers, if anyone wanders and someone brings him back, These words are directed to every person in the body. Commentator Stephen Cole points out that this passage makes it clear that this calling is not reserved for pastors. It is to the entire church. Again, this is something that James has addressed a number of times throughout this book. So it is fitting that he ends by saying the very same thing. Our faith is corporate. 
but so too is our ministry. Ministry is not reserved for pastors, elders, super-Christians, people with a title. Ministry is for all of us. In the past, we've spent a lot of time talking about this idea of oikos. This Greek word oikos that's used several times throughout the New Testament points to the fact that every single one of us has about 10 to 15 people in our immediate circle. Whether that be family members, friends, a co-worker that you share a cubicle with, whatever. There's about 10 to 15 people that you have some sort of voice into their life on a consistent basis. And when we've talked about that idea, we've, we've tried to establish that every single one of us has been called by God to be the gospelite to your oikos. Because here's the thing about your oikos. It's yours. It's not mine. You have relationships with people that no one else in this room does. You have influence in certain people's lives that no one else, including your pastor, has. You have a closeness of a relationship. You have a voice. You have spent time building a bridge of connection to that group of people. You have earned trust. You have earned the right to speak truth into their lives. That means that your influence on them is a whole lot more powerful than that of a stranger that they just met. Now, certainly, the the church is important. Certainly, we want you to invite your loved ones to come to church, to hear the truth of the gospel, to experience the shared community of worship. That is absolutely something that we want, that I encourage, that I advocate. Bring your friends, bring your loved ones. But the truth is, it will do a whole lot more for them if you, someone they know and love, if you are the one who's at the end of that human chain. And you're the one with your hand reaching out to them saying, trust me, let's get back to shore. Every one of us is called to share in that mission. It's the reason why every single week in this service we end by saying the mission starts after church. Because we share in that together. And that begins in earnest when the service ends. When we go back out into our normal lives. Certainly in here, we link our arms together. We link together and support one another. It is truly in here that we unify as a body, together, standing on the shore. And it's from there that we look out and we see the ones who are being swept away. And together in prayer, in fellowship, we begin to link. But we are linking together to put you on the end of that chain so that you will be the one to speak gospel love into the life 
of the drowning. You cannot get past the command of James. When you see a person straying, you go and get them. Now, notice as well one of the things that is not said here. There is a difference between a human chain and a gossip chain. A very important difference between a human chain and a gossip chain. You don't start a gossip chain to rescue someone. You start a human chain of love and shared desire for salvation. Those are very different things. And so when we're looking out for each other and we see that person straying, the first move isn't to call up everyone and go, hey, did you notice that so-and-so is doing such-and-such? We ought to pray for them, shouldn't we? Guys, uh, uh, I have a prayer request. It's, uh, it's for our, our friend. I won't mention any names, but this is exactly what they look like. I'll let you fill in the blank. Uh, listen, I've been noticing as I've kind of been watching out for them as a brother or sister should that they're doing X, Y, and Z. And Man, man we, we ought to pray. Shouldn't we? Let's talk about this. That's not what James is talking about at all. All that will do is destroy trust. All it will do is destroy relationship. All it will do is erode the foundation that we're trying to build. James says, if anyone wanders and someone brings him back, that is what we are called to do. Finally, point number four. Every rescue is an act of God. Every rescue is an act of God. Last week, in the passage that we studied, we saw that we cannot walk away with an inflated sense of self. We cannot walk away from this passage thinking that we are the ones with the saving power. God is the one that saves. Uh, When we looked last week at how he says, call for the elders and let them pray, and that the prayer of faith will save the one who's sick. And and then he, he talked about if you've committed sins, that you confess and you pray that you may be healed because the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it's working. And when we looked at that passage, we clearly saw this is not really about the elders or the person praying. This is about faith in the promises of God. We don't have the power to save someone from sickness or save someone from sin. And that's not what James is saying here either. He is saying that we are called to be faithful and to be obedient. When Roberta Ursary was rescued, along with her family, by 80 bystanders, she said something interesting when it was all over. She was being interviewed by the Washington Post about this experience of being rescued. And she said this, It was beachgoers and the grace of God's will. That's why we're here still today. It was beachgoers and the grace of God's will. She recognized rightly 
that ultimately her rescue was not just from the hands of 80 people. It was the hand of God himself who reached down into that water to save her and her children and her husband and her mother and her nephews. This passage does not imply that we are the ones to save others. We, after all, cannot save anyone. What it does show us is that God intended to use the church as his hands and feet. That God intended for the church to be his mouthpiece. If we look at all of the stories of salvation in Scripture, one thing that is abundantly clear is that God very seldom, very rarely saves in isolation. Very rarely does a person get saved and others were not involved. We can only point to a few examples. For example, the Apostle Paul on the road to Damascus is visited in a vision by Jesus himself. That's one of the only places that we can point to that the church is not actively involved in reaching out. But even in that situation, shortly after, it's the church that comes to him and ministers. Ananias, who's terrified that Paul is a faker and is going to just murder them all, is called by God to be the rescuer. You go and get him. Let him set up shop at your house and you begin to disciple him. God does not save in isolation, typically. So this woman who's rescued recognizes that it's, it's the hands of 80 people. It's also the hand of God. The church is God's vehicle of salvation to reach people. That means that we get to play a vital role of obedience in his plan for redemption. So you must ask yourselves, are you ready for that kind of commitment? What, after all, is your view of what the church is supposed to be? Truly, what are we doing here? Why do we gather every single week? Is it to simply gather corporately to worship and to learn? Or are we chained together in a joined mission to see the gospel take over the world? Are we joined together in a passion for one another and for our community to see God glorified in this city? My hope is that My hope is that we aren't here just to play church. That we aren't here just to talk about the things of God, but never actually do the things of God. My hope is that we're gathered here in oneness, in openness, in vulnerability, and shared passion for the gospel. Because if that is not why you are here, I don't know what to tell you. That's why I'm here. I didn't move my family here from another state just to gather together and talk about the Bible. My hope is that each one of us shares this passion. My other hope is that 
your view of the church if you are the one who is struggling, if you are the one who is caught in the riptide. My hope is that you will find here a safe place to confess openly, a safe place to seek rescue. My hope is that what you'll find here is a body, a body who will love one another, who will link arms together, who will be unified in God's mission to save the world from drowning. So, as a symbol of that very thing, I invite you to now stand and let us form a human chain. Wherever you're sitting, stand and join hands all across this room, linked together, because we're going to go to the Lord in prayer together. Now, I know that this might seem cheesy, but I'm the pastor and you have to do what I tell you. So, with hands and hearts joined, let us close in prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the hands and the hearts that you have joined in this room today. I thank you for the church that you are building. I thank you that we have here in this room people from various backgrounds people with various gifts and talents, people with various passions, various interests and things they're good at, people who each have their own corner of the world. And Lord, I pray that here you will begin to send us to those corners of the world, corners of the world that only we as individuals can reach, that you have called every single one of us to go and reach. God, I pray that throughout every single week that this gathering together on Sunday will cause us to be linked together, hand in hand, heart in heart, soul in soul, so that when we leave here, we don't leave alone. We leave with each other. God, I pray that if there are any here or listening online that need to be rescued. People who are being dragged away by a riptide of fear, doubt, temptation, pain, that you would show us, Lord, how to link together and reach those souls in danger and that you would bring them back, not just back to a building, but back to restoration with you. I pray that every single one of us, Lord, will play our part. God, as in the next few moments our worship team comes back to close us in worship, Lord, I pray that as we sing these songs to you, it would not just be individuals singing this song, that it wouldn't just be one person at a time separately singing this song. I pray that as a unified body together, we might sing 
our worship back to the Savior who gave his all for us. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for not only saving us, but sending us. For not only giving us salvation, but also a part to play in your story of redemption. You are good, and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. You can return to your normal place, but I invite you to continue to stand as our worship team comes back to close us.